You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. This is a new podcast combining discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know... Starting a podcast about theology and still spirits is risky business. <laughs> I said that with a straight face. Distilling theology. We will, we will rock your podcast app because we're making music. All right, enough. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Distilling Theology. My name is Justin. And my name is Blake. And we come to you today from the sweet, sweet north country of New York. Well, it's central New York. It's still north. <laughs> Anyways, I hope everyone's having a fantastic week. I know we have been very much enjoying uh, the company and the fellowship as we sit here and uh, record this. These will probably be the few episodes that we record together we may end up having to record them separately or from a distance due to the nature of where we live. Blake, what are we sipping today? Today we are trying something we bought at the store for like 30 bucks for kicks. Neither of us have had this before. This is Jim Beam Rye pre-prohibition style. And they keep talking about how great it is as a cocktail mixer. So generally, generally what that means, uh, just from my experience in bartending, is that it's a spirit you may not drink on its own, but it's probably fine mixed into anything. Probably make a great Manhattan or an old-fashioned, but we haven't tasted it yet. It is a rye that is pre-prohibition style whiskey aged in new charred white oak barrels to 90 proof. It is distinctly dry spiced, and it has a long soft finish, making this a classic all-American spirit. The perfect choice for any whiskey cocktail. Are you sure about that? That is what it says. Also, the typography on the side of the label is driving me nuts. (laughs) Like like that one you just read, like the way it's broken up. They tried to make it kind of look like an old Western kind of like poster, except it's done very poorly. So to all... offense, Jim Beam? No, the front looks beautiful. The front does look great. It's a very lovely green label. We posted a photo of it on our Instagram as a... uh, Please go to at Distilling Theology on Instagram and hit follow and please heart every single picture that you see because they're all lovely. What he said. I agree completely. (laughs) So this is a whiskey neither of us have tried, as Blake said, so we are going to give it a sip and let you know what we think. Cheers. Well, that happened. Hello, darkness, my old friend. So, okay, it's, it's actually exceeding my expectations a little bit. It is actually. I'm it just, is not bad. It's pretty smooth. It's kind of light-bodied almost mm-hmm. um, all the way through. It's uh, clearly awry, so it's got kind of a dry finish. What do you think? I'm kind of enjoying a little bit of oak kind of nuttiness with it. Yeah, if you enjoy, like, chewing bark. Adirondack does stand for bark eater, and we both love the Adirondack. That is true. Well played. I walked into that one. Congratulations. You played yourself. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I'm fine. It's so good, he can't even keep it in his throat. <laughs> fine. Promise. 
No, it's actually, it's better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, that's part of the fun for me with trying different whiskeys is you sometimes never know what you're going to get. There's some distilleries you know are always going to be good. There's others that you don't necessarily know. Bitterness. Granted, we did look this up on uh, an app called Distiller before we purchased. We cheated. Um, <laughs> although I think there's there's prudence to that. There's prudence <clears throat> to looking at what other people have said about something before you purchase it. I try to do that with different book items I buy. I can tell you right now, this would be a good rye to mix with like a Sprite or a, I think, in my opinion, a Sprite type beverage. Something light. Something with lots of fizzies. <laughs> Blake is cringing right now because I'm not a bartender of any stretch of the imagination. Uh, what no, would I mean, you do with this? Bottle? I would put this in a Manhattan because the traditional Manhattan, little cocktail history for you, free of charge. Uh, the traditional Manhattan was made with rye whiskey, mostly because that's what was readily available. It's fine with bourbon, but I tend personally to prefer it with rye because rye has a nice spiciness that goes against the herbal sweetness of a red style or a sweet vermouth. And then the bitters kind of marry everything together really nicely. And then in an old fashioned, it would also probably be nice. It's actually a little sweeter than I, despite how oaky it is, it's a little sweeter than I thought it would it be. It does kind of remind me of my buddy Josh's old fashions when mm-hmm. he makes them. But of course, he uses black velvet. <laughs> you know, to each their own. But yeah, it's it's like a mouthful of oak, and there's a little bit of apple, mm-hmm. like green apples, mm-hmm. and rye spice. Because um, it's got a little sourness to it. It's, it's yeah, it's kind of tart. I mean, it's it's an interesting blend of, of sweet and tart and dry and spicy and just baptized in oak. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> baptized in oak. So I mean, fully submerged. Well, we can debate that another day. <laughs> yeah, I think that the oakiness is good, to a point. However, I also think that um, the... I, that's not going to be a smooth segue. We're just going to just gonna <laughs> cut that. Yeah, so today we wanted to talk a little bit about where we stand theologically in general. We wanted to kind of give you all some context as far as when we're speaking, what perspective we're speaking from. Mm-hmm. Um because everybody's going to have different opinions. Our worldviews are going to differ in some ways. The important thing is that we're both Christians. We both love Christ. We both do fall very similarly on most major issues. So really, there's just some minor differences between us. We're totally unified in Christ. And in the areas we disagree, we do so joyfully, uh, usually with some fun and interesting memes back and forth as well. So All the memes. Yes. <laughs> so, Blake, why don't you tell everybody where you stand and how you got there? So, again, I grew up non-denominational. I ended up going to Regent University, which is a trans-denominational institution. However, they do tend to have more charismatic leanings. Hmm. So I ended up being a little bit more charismatic post-Regent. Although, ironically, that's where I met my Presbyterian friend, who slowly and surely started to seduce me to the dark side of Reformed theology. From there, then I went up and I lived in the Adirondacks for a few years on my own. And when I was up there, I listened to audiobooks. I read a lot. I got, like bordered into like Christian mysticism like and I still appreciate some of the thoughts from Henri Nouwen and some of the others but I not the way that I did then I thought then I think I I took it a little more heavily I was into John Eldridge a lot at the time but what was funny was it was through those writers that I started to encounter Spurgeon and Luther and Calvin and Edwards and Augustine ironically it was through those very much not reformed people mm. that I got interested into Reformed theology. But like many people in our generation, the way that I got into it was by way of soteriology or the systematic theology heading 
that delineates theology about salvation. Within systematic theology, that's soteriology. So I got very fascinated by this discussion of how are we saved from a kind of technical standpoint. I know at the end of the day, from a praxis or practical standpoint, I have to put my faith in Christ. And that looks like repenting and confessing Jesus and then obeying what he says. Like that, you know, from a very fundamental, like practical standpoint, I don't think that anything has really changed. Yes. But when it comes to the the technical <laughs> theological understanding of how that stuff works out, I started studying and I wasn't like a lot of my peers. I didn't go through Mark Driscoll. I didn't go through Piper. I like ended up reading R.C. Sproul out of the gate, <laughs> which was not necessarily heavy. Norm. Yeah. And, and uh, I actually listened to an audio book of Sproul's, which was his chosen by God lecture series, which is basically about the whole topic of predestination. And what struck me about it, though, was his gracious approach to it. He wasn't condescending or rude to the other positions. He was simply laying out, here's the biblical case for this, uh, you know, this position, as opposed to the biblical case from the other way. And here's stuff about the Greek. Here's stuff about the Hebrew. Here's exegesis. Here's historical theological looking, which like, and, and I agree with him here, like we don't hold any brief for human tradition. Just because somebody who was smart and who was revered said something, you know, I don't ascribe to anything that just one theologian said just because they said it or, you know, all of them collectively. Like, and, and that was kind of his point. He lays out the people who held an Augustinian view of man's will. That is that uh, or, or, you know, of, uh, yeah, of man's will. That is yeah. that men are fallen in such a state that they not only don't desire God, but they don't have the moral ability to desire God as the distinguishing factor uh, Jonathan Edwards used. And I believe for Augustine, it was the idea that you had free will. You had the faculty of choice. You can choose what you want, but the want to is the issue, the desire of the heart. And he defined that as libertas or liberty. So we don't have moral liberty to do what we want. And Edwards later would say that is we have natural ability to choose, but we lack the moral ability to choose God. And that's like Romans 3 lays some of those ideas out. So I spent a lot of time there wrestling with this idea of the the, the five points of Calvinism, trying to wrap my brain around it because I thought it was this terrible concept. I was like, why would anyone believe in this? And I thought, you know, all these Calvinists worship John Calvin and, (laughs) you know, what's wrong with them? Like they should just read their Bible. And then I read my Bible (laughs) without trying to say, okay, how does my free will fit into this? And I read Ephesians 2, where it says you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then it says, and you were made alive in Christ, but God made you alive. Like, and then I got to Romans 9, you know, the classic text. And I'm reading along there and it says, you know, you will say to me, how will he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? Now, I don't like to use that as a response to other people. I like to engage Armenians in the text a little more. But for me, that was convicting because I realized that was my argument against yep. the sovereignty of yep. God was, well, <clears throat> how can how can God still be just in, in holding people accountable if he's sovereign and, we, and, and his will ultimately in the grand scheme of things is going to come to pass? So, you know, my friends joke that I'm a closet Presbyterian. I don't know if that's necessarily true. It's true. <laughs> um, but I do find 
you know, a lot of the things in the Westminster Confession of Faith compelling. I think that it's a great summation and it's very pragmatic. And I see you've got your London Baptist 1689 confession there. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. And the final, it's the final, final <laughs> masterpiece. The masterpiece. Fascinating. Obviously, there's things in there that I, you know, I'm still wrestling with. I'm not saying that I'm fully confessional reformed. You ask people, what is, what does it mean to be reformed? The main answer that I've gotten is that you're Calvinistic in your soteriology. You're confessional. You hold to one of the reformed confessions. Creedal, and, you affirm the creeds. Right, you're creedal, and and you have a covenantal view of theology as opposed to a dispensational view. And beyond that, though, there's actually a lot of flexibility within those terms, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. And for me, one of the things that I find beneficial is speaking to people who don't agree with me on everything or who Amen. don't agree with me on most things and being able to engage and look at the text and say, all right, well, here's let's exegete the text. And how do we do that? And that to me has been, you know, what, what hermeneutics are we bringing yeah. uh, or, or how are we approaching the Bible and how are we trying to, to decipher its meaning? <clears throat> it's excellent. Brief overview. Yeah. We'll get, I mean, we'll have however many podcast episodes we do to <laughs> go into the nitty gritty. Yeah. But what about you? So growing up in a home where my parents were both Christians, they loved Jesus. I naturally went to church every week uh, and we attended a Wesleyan church right in town, literally right next to my house. There's my house, there's a big parking lot, and then there's the church. And so I, I went to that, we always went to that Wesleyan church after the pastor resigned there was some scuttlebutt on who they wanted to be pastor. Everybody kept asking my dad. He had kind of assisted with the church for years, um, filling the pulpit on occasion. He got voted in, and he became the pastor of the Wesleyan Church in Camden here. And so for years, I subscribed to the Wesleyan Discipline, basically their statement of faith. I pretty much affirmed Arminian theology. I was a big proponent of free will, this whole idea that, you know, I, I used to use this same the silly arguments like God's not a rapist. He's not going to force you to love him. And, and so I, I used terrible analogy, but this is the way I heard it uh, in many ways. And so I fully subscribed to that. I used to be the kind of guy that would say, you know, why isn't it both? You know, God knows the future, but the, the kind of the foreknowledge view that God knows the future, but that doesn't negate our ability to choose which road we take and the fork in the road and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I, I mean, I used to be really, really solidly affirming of that. And I used to argue with people about it. And then I started hearing these alternative preachers on, on the internet. I've talked about it briefly before. I heard Mark Driscoll kind of described his kind of almost view of Calvinism. He was kind of a 4.5 pointer, which for me, I think God kind of used that in a way to kind of gracefully lead me into full-blown Calvinism. So I started listening to the way he was explaining Tulip, and I was kind of like, okay, I'm on board with that. That makes a little more sense. So I started uh, I started reading more. I started, I kind of started doing what Blake was doing. I started opening my scriptures and reading them without trying to force my worldview into it and just say, okay, just what does the text say? And naturally, I ended up in the same place you did reading Romans, you know, this whole idea of the potter can do what he wants with this clay. You know, we're, we're merely his creation, and he can endure vessels of wrath and also create vessels of honorable use. Why can't he? He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, he does what he pleases. He chose Israel for no other reason other than it pleased him to do so. So why couldn't he choose a people for no other reason other than it pleased him to do so? So I started wrestling with these ideas and started talking with my dad about them. And what I learned about my dad really was he wasn't really a Wesleyan at all. Uh, he really kind of fell into the camp with... Sproul and Piper and uh, Edwards and Francis Schaeffer, mm-hmm. uh, who was one of my dad's pillars of the faith as far as he, he, he you know, references. And so I believe, uh, I believe Francis Schaeffer was Presbyterian, by the way. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> we have cookies. <laughs> so I started really wrestling with these things, and it wasn't until I started socializing with other Calvinists via the internet that I started hearing about these things called the confessions, confessions of faith, Calvinism, reformed theology. You know, I early on thought they meant the same thing. Clearly, they do not. Um, and then I picked up a copy of the Westminster. I picked up a copy of the Baptist Confession of Faith. And I, I read through them, and I just found myself agreeing with everything that they were saying. I said, this makes sense. This is so clear. How, you know, how did I not see these things before? Ultimately, after reading both confessions, I, I fall into the Baptist camp, and I am very thankful that God has provided these things in history and these great pillars of faith and forefathers before us who've written all these things and put these things into word so that we could grasp these concepts and kind of prevent ourselves from repeating age-old heresies and and falling into all these different um, ideologies and theologies and soteriologies. So, yeah, and then it just, at that point, I was sold fully on Reformed theology, and the more I've studied uh, about it, the the covenantal theology, the way that you see in Scripture God working through covenants, it's just so clear, abundantly clear to me, that I don't think that there's any turning back at this point. Uh, So, yeah, former Wesleyan turned... Reformed Baptist. Uh, still attending a Wesleyan church, by the way, because my dad is the pastor. He's very Calvinistic. He doesn't personally subscribe to any of the confessions at this time, but I don't have any good biblical reason to leave the church because the fellowship is there. Most of the congregants are Calvinistic and Reformed, and the teaching that's coming out of the pulpit has just solid biblical exegesis, and I have no qualms with any of the teaching right now in the church, and so I, I don't have a reason to leave just because there's a name on the door that uh, may mean something else to somebody, so... That's awesome. And I, I think it's interesting, too, because the when I first would see people quote confessions, I thought that they used them in the place of Scripture. Yep. I definitely misunderstood how they were used mm-hmm. because I thought, all right, well, why don't you just answer me with the text? Well, what I realized <laughs> is, OK, I can quote you John 3 or a part of John 3 where Jesus interacts with Nicodemus. And I could just say, this is what the Bible clearly says. And the problem is, a lot of the time, there's still a degree of how your theological leaning interprets that passage. Your presuppositions. Well, we'll get into apologetics later, but yes. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, for me, it's like, all right, well, what do I believe the Bible is saying? And so to me, the confessions are a representation of here are things that a group of faithful ministers of the word and theologians got together and wrestled through these questions and tried to put into simple everyday language for the everyday believer what they believe the Bible says about something. And again, like I said, there's things that I like more than others. There's some things I really agree with. You know, we were talking a few, I think maybe the first episode about um, the Westminster Catechism's description of the chief end of man. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Like, I don't think that there's a better summation of what scripture teaches in, you know, that short a phrase than that statement. It doesn't mean that that statement is now scripture. Amen. And it doesn't mean that now I'm going to say, okay, well, thus says the Lord, the chief end of man is to, you know, glorify God and enjoy him forever. I I think um, think in many ways, when R.C. Sproul is talking in the Calvinist documentary, shout out less, when he's talking about Calvinism being the most pure and, I guess, undefiled representation of biblical Christianity today, it's just garnered the nickname Calvinism. I think in the same way the confessions are just a pure and undefiled representation of what Christians believe. You know, you go on, you go to a church's website, they all have statements of faith. 
They're all going to tell so, okay, why do, why do you want to come to this church? This is what the church believes. Really, the confessions are like extremely detailed, outlined, basically statements of faith saying this is what Christianity has taught. This is what we believe. This is what we believe has always been taught. And so you can either say, yes, I agree, or you can not agree. You know, it's not scripture, but here's here's what we believe. And then also here is the scripture that we're using so it even point the confessions even point you back to the scriptures to say right. in the same way you know test the scriptures test everything Paul says against scripture don't take my word for it basically so they even include look this is why we believe it here's the scripture in which we draw this idea from go look at it go read it in context and make up your own mind absolutely and I think it's telling that at least all the confessions I you know the the, the 1689 and the Westminster both start with the only final infallible inerrant authority is the scripture yes and that's not everything there on else, accident right and that's where they begin they don't yes. begin with theology proper or the theology of god they begin with a chapter on what we believe about the scripture that sola scriptura the cry of the reformation scripture alone uh, and i think you know like for example chapter two of the westminster and it's very similar in the 1689 yes is, you know, I, I've heard atheists make the statement in debates with Christian apologists. Well, if you Christians could even agree on what defines God, and I think this is a beautiful definition. And again, every one of these points has a scripture reference or two or three, but it says there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, Almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. I mean, if that isn't like... One of the best summations of the biblical account of the attributes of God. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, and that's what I come down to is it's a, this is a statement of what we believe, you know, of what the confessions are saying. We confess this. If people are going to argue that the confessions, why bother using the confessions when we can just read scripture? The argument would then equally be made. Why bother listening to preachers if you can just read the scriptures? Mm -hmm. The the preachers in the pulpit are just doing the same thing that's happening here. They're right. taking the scriptures and they're making it plain and simple for the hearer to understand and to apply. So you, you take one of these and this could have been a sermon written by somebody. Yeah. I, I mean, it's really, it's a silly argument to say, well, just read the scriptures. Right. And, and this idea that no creed but Christ. Well, Christ who? Okay, well, now you're declaring to me what your creed is. Right. So I, there's no there's no way around it. It's just how you how you apply it and yeah. where you're getting your application from. And again, at the end of the day, if there's something where the confession blatantly or even subtly disagrees with the text of script of what the scripture is teaching, then that part of it, then I'm not going to affirm that. I mean, that's yeah. where, you know, I haven't really bumped into I mean, we can talk about that later in other episodes, but you know, for the most part, I'm like, yeah, it just pretty much agrees with what I see the text of scripture. Like this makes sense of the, the, the biblical data. And I mean, we can talk about that more in uh Another episode about the distinctions of biblical theology and systematic theology and exegetical theology and historical theology and how those things all intersect yes. uh, and are not meant to be pitted against each other. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. Uh, you know, 
We still have to have some conflict because uh, <laughs> this is this is television, folks. Actually, this is radio. <laughs> we are filling your ear holes. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. <laughs> I've made it my goal over these uh, the duration that we do this podcast to try to at least make Blake uncomfortable one time during the episode. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, to that, I think last time we left a little cliffhanger about creation. We did. Um, and I was a little vague, and you said you had a very firm position. So I let's, do. Let's let you lead that in. because I'm, I'm going to open with Chapter 4 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. The revised version, the 1689, not the 1644 that predates the Westminster Confession of Faith. Wink, wink. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of his glory or of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all the things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in the knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written on their hearts, and the power to fulfill it, and yet, under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So I think it is abundantly clear to all that are listening the Reformed view, the truly Reformed view, the Reformed Baptist view of creation is that it was happening within the course of six days, not millions of years, six literal days. And I, I think I think it's silly to think otherwise. And you better agree with me, Blake. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I'm a young earth creationist. I, I believe in six days. Praises. <laughs> Praise hands emojis. Trying to, you know, trying to create drama where there is none. I mean, <laughs> and, and the thing is, I've had great conversations with very firm Bible-believing Christians. Yes. And some Reformed Baptists. Uh, who are old earth creationists and have presented views. I don't think it's a salvific issue, in other words. <laughs> but reform is not equal to saved. And I think that's a Amen. really important distinction Amen. that we want to encourage. And, and I think through the course of this, we'd like to have other people on. I think it was George Whitfield who said of John Wesley mm. that he's not going to see him in heaven because Wesley is going to be so much closer to the throne of God than Whitfield will be. Mm. And I think that is a great way to describe what true unity in Christ looks like, despite all these theological differences we might have. We believe that, our gen- generally speaking, our Armenian brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, uh, with perhaps some views that we might find erroneous, but by no means does that mean that we think they're unsaved or that they may not be experts in areas that maybe we fall in and fail in. There's certainly, I, I know several, even in my own church, I know at least one of our pastors is a brilliant, brilliant historical theologian. He knows history like nobody's business. I mean, he, he teaches college-level classes. He's a brilliant guy. He's an Arminian, as far as I can tell, and we've had some interesting conversations, and he struggles deeply with what appears to be determinism. He, I don't think he quite grasps the idea that Calvinism and determinism are not the same thing, because yeah. every time we've had an interaction, he's described determinism, this idea that God's coming down and telling us when to pick our nose and all that thing. So... But the idea is we're, we're united in Christ. We we, mm-hmm. we stand under the same umbrella. And, um, you know, I don't think there's any reason to divide where, especially in an age where there's so much divisiveness over everything. Everything's polarized. Yeah. Well, and the world is so, I mean, we talked about this before. The world is against 
those who belong to Christ. So why do we bicker among ourselves? And it's not to say there aren't important. It's not to say that young earth or old earth isn't important or doesn't have an implication. It's not to say that Arminianism and Calvinism aren't important issues that are worth you know discussing. Mm-hmm. But within the context of brotherly love and within the context of, all right, I'm not going to suddenly start throwing accusations and saying, well, you're not saved because you don't agree with everything that I that I believe. Right. There's close-handed issues and there's open-handed issues. You know, you have the close-handed issues. Who is Christ? Who is God? Mm-hmm. You know, how are we to be saved? Right. And then on the open-handed issues, you have, to an extent, eschatology. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the creation, old and young earth creation, assuming you're not you know, Darwinian evolution doesn't really fall into the category of biblical Christianity whatsoever. You know, there's people who, who you know, believe you got to wear a suit and tie on Sunday. And there's people that, like me, that show up in a flannel and jeans. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's my pagan roots, people. Uh, so there's open-handed issues that are perfectly fine. One of the things I heard good old Mark Driscoll say once in describing the same thing, and if I learned anything from him that's good, this is probably one of those things, this idea that, Christianity, let's say, on a map is the United States, and the open-handed issues are like the different states. You can travel between them and and have different ideas, but you're still within the United States. You're still within the realm of Christianity. But then you peak to a certain point on a certain issue, and oops, now you're in Canada. Oops, now you're in Mexico. You're no longer in the realm of Christianity. Yeah, don't go to Canada. No, Canada. Listen, you're like the wool hat that Grandma knits for Christmas that no one really wants to wear. Over the United States. And, no, I'm just kidding. Canada, we love you. We love Canada. And I'll, I mean, I've been to Canada plenty of times. It's right up, like when I was up in the Adirondacks, I've been to Canada fairly frequently, actually. But yeah, and, and I think, you know, one example of that would be like, you have, and we just watched a, a great film about this called, uh, if I can remember the name of it. Oh my gosh. Hold on. We'll just cut this out because this is embarrassing. Are you sure about that? Uh, was it incredible? No, it's not incredible. What was it called? The one on the prosperity teaching. American Gospel. American Gospel. I just watched a film called American Gospel. How could you forget that, Blake? Dude, I, I was thinking Christ alone because it's the whole thrust of that story, of that documentary, is showing that this idea of prosperity preaching Christ in all its forms is not who Jesus is. You're teaching a Christ who isn't pointing people you know, who isn't the only way of salvation yes. and who isn't actually the Christ of the Bible, the son of the living God who comes into human history and confronts us and tells us to deny ourselves and to carry our crosses. Instead, you have a Jesus who says, come to me and I will give you a new car and I will make all your pain go away. And I will. Uh, and it's what's really tragic about that is how it takes it preys on people who are already hurting and it gives them a false gospel. And I think that comes back to what we were talking about, about the, the gospel is not that complicated, but it's profound in its depths of God rescuing sinners and making this way by Christ alone and then indwelling by the spirit that we can be sanctified and transformed. I mean, we're trying to, to add levity as well, so we're not just so heavy. But I think it's important. You know, I think that ebb and flow is important. And I think that, you know, to me, that's just an absolutely beautiful thing. And as we've talked, a little creation, a little gospel. Maybe next time we can start to talk about the idea of regeneration and how God has created the whole world. And in the end, he's going to recreate everything yes. in an yes. ultimate sense. But also in the temporal sense, he's making new creations out of his people. That post mill, though. Well, we'll get there. 
creation is getting better, my friend. (laughs) All right, y'all. Thank you for tuning in again for another lovely episode of Distilling Theology. We greatly appreciate you putting us into your ear holes every time you do. Blake. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate it. I hope you enjoy the content. Let us know what you're drinking and what you're reading right now. And if you have any ideas of whiskeys we should try or books we should be reading. Or topics we can talk about. That too, because we, despite our ability to improv and ramble, (coughs) we are still finite beings. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, this episode is also finite. The end. To learn more, visit distillingtheology.com and check us out on Instagram at Distilling Theology and Facebook, Distilling Theology.